This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for GYC. We thank you for all the young and the old who have come to hear inspiring messages as you're lifted up. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we will do the same, that your spirit would immerse our hearts and our minds. Lord, we pray for wisdom and understanding as we uh, discuss and wrestle with um, this very important topic. And uh, we thank you, Lord. We also want to ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 All right. Well, I, I want to go ahead and start by uh, introducing our uh, panelists, and it's not in order of importance, uh, although I really do like uh, Adam Ramden. Uh, he's, a, he's a youth ministries director for the North England Conference. He's also director of Peace uh, Center of Evangelism. He's no stranger to GYC. Uh, he did the Sabbath message uh, several GYCs ago. A good friend of mine, uh, that's Adam Ramden. Then we have uh, of course, Chester Clark, uh, pastor at Dalton Seventh-day Adventist Church. If you're around Southern, you certainly want to go and visit his church. Uh, it's also uh, served in various capacities as, a, uh, as an ASI vice president, as an executive committee member of the general conference. And of course, he's uh, a board member of GYC. And uh, we also have Siku Dako, uh, one of uh, several directors at campus, uh, ministry in Michigan. Uh, she's also been a speaker at, at GYC, uh, spoke at the GC for a morning devotional, very powerful message. And again, no stranger to GYC. And last but not least, we have Ty Gibson, uh, co-director of Light Bearers, uh, pastor of the Storyline Adventist Church. Uh, you've probably seen him, uh, him and his uh, co director on 3ABN, and also no stranger uh, to GYC. And so I uh, just want to welcome uh, the panelists and also uh, all of you here this morning. Uh, I do want to start off by stating that our statements and the discussion points that we share here do not reflect uh, the views of GYC in any uh, official capacity. So just want to say that for the record, it's not like we're going to say anything crazy, but just want to protect ourselves in that. Uh, we do have some, um, some cowboys up here and cowgirls as, as well, so uh, keep that in mind. So I'm going to go ahead and start with a statement from someone who uh, many of us know, uh, Professor John Pauline, who's currently the Dean of the School of Religion at Loma Linda University. And he describes it very well, some of the issues taking place in regards to the remnant. Uh, in 2007, he stated, and this is when he was still at the seminary, uh, as the chair of the New Testament department, he said, Seventh-day Adventists, through the years, have come to identify themselves with the remnant described in Revelation 12:17. They understand themselves to be a people that God has raised up at the end of time who keep his commandments and have the testimony of Jesus. This traditional position has been losing ground in recent years. 
increasing numbers of Seventh-day Adventists are unconvinced that the text can be focused so narrowly on a specific de denomination and its beliefs at the end of time. I find the perception, even among students at the seminary, in other words, future pastors of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, that the very phrase, the remnant church, smacks of arrogance and exclusivity. So, uh, just to, and, and in addition to that, I wanna share uh, a recent quote from Elder Ted Wilson, where he affirms uh, our traditional position at the annual council in 2014. And I, and, and quote, <clears throat> excuse me, this prophetic movement described in Revelation 12, 17 as God's remnant people who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus is constituted in only one body of faith today, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So with that said, I want to start with Adam. When you received the invitation to join this panel several months ago, you stated that among the two topics, the subject of the remnant was of more importance to the average youth today. Why do you see the subject as so important? Just to clarify, the, the two topics was the... <clears throat> was the remnant and also final generation theology. Okay. So final generation theology and, and the subject of the remnant. The reason why I said I thought that this one was more important was just surveying, I guess, amongst the young people. There, there seems to be a, a lack of understanding about the identity of the remnant. And because there's a lack of understanding about the identity of the remnant, it affects the young people in the mission of the remnant. And so motivating young people for mission is, is difficult because I don't even know if this is the remnant church. And so this, this poor understanding of who we are affects the mission as to why I'm even here. Um, and so that's why I guess I said that I think it was, it was more important that as young people today we understand who, who we are. And I think the, the current generation that, uh, like millennials or whatever we call, there's less of a desire to say, you know, I am this and you are wrong. And so how, how amongst this, I guess, maybe slightly different culture, do we still stand for something definitive at the same time as not, as, as some of those courts earlier said, smacks of arrogance? So how do you balance that clearness in a, in a nice way, I guess you'd say? Before the other panelists respond, I want to move to the, to the second related topic, and then let's just really open it up for discussion. Um, Siku, you, uh, how do you define the notion of the remnant? Now, Adam has just shared uh, why it's so important and relevant for young people. Um, how do you define the notion of the remnant? Does the Seventh-day Adventist Church constitute the eschatological end-time rem remnant of Revelation? 1217. Um, I think, well, I'll, I would uh, refer to the first time we see the word remnant in the Bible in Exodus 26, uh, verse 12. It's talking about building the sanctuary. And it says, And the remnant that remaineth of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain remaineth, shall hang over the backside of the tabernacle. So just the idea of remnant implies um, two things. Like, first, that there's an original. And then there's something that remains of that original that is identical in 
that is qualitatively identical to the original. Um, and so in Revelation, when you get to Revelation 12, 17, and it's talking about the remnant who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus, that means that there must be an original people all the way throughout the history of time that have kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And there's a people when you come to the end of time who are the remnant of that, but it's a, it's a my, I guess my biblical understanding of it is qualitative, like these are people who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Um, and I want to say too that, I mean, you look at the Israelites, um, when, by the time Jesus came, who they didn't even recognize Jesus when he came, um, but they were so sure that they were God's special people, and they didn't even realize they, rec they didn't even recognize the God who was their creator. So, it's not about belonging to a specific um, group of people, so to speak. Um, so, in Galatians three, Paul says, "You know, you're Abraham's seed. If you're like your father Abraham, Jesus said the same thing. If you're like your father Abraham, it's something qualitative in a people who keep God's commandments." have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Very good answer. Does anyone else want to add uh, to that discussion? I would add two points if I could. <clears throat> One is that there's a pattern in scripture. So when we come to the book of Revelation, every concept that we encounter in Revelation has its rooting in Old Testament language and concept. The concept in the Old Testament from which the idea of remnant is taken is the idea that Israel was a national people, a national identity, and that people went into exile, persecution, war, and scattering at different times. Once the people is scattered, then there's a regathering, and the language that is employed in 2 Kings 19, Isaiah chapter 1, a number of other passages, is, is simply this pattern that you have a cohesive body that's visible before the world with national borders and identity. Persecution happens of some kind or war. The people scatter. Some are taken into captivity. There's a test of a person's commitment mm -hmm. to the calling. And then there's a regathering of the people. The remnants come back together to form a cohesive visible body again. So when we come to Revelation chapter 12, the whole chapter leading up to verse 17, that's the pattern that, that John is tapping into. Mm -hmm. He's essentially saying you have, you have the church that goes underground through persecution through the dark ages. They're scattered. You have everything from the Waldensian history to the Huguenots and all of that history that we are familiar with. The dark ages, you don't have a visible, constituted, corporate body with national or denominational borders. It's scattered. So who's who? And then the 1260-year prophecy is articulated. And then verse 17 is essentially saying, aha, 1260 years of persecution, dark ages is over. And what reemerges at the end of time? A regathering from exile, from persecution, from spiritual war, a regathering of a people that bear the identifying characteristics of the original thing before it went underground. Mm -hmm. So th that's the, the basic pattern of the concept of remnant. I really like that. Uh, Chester, do you have anything to add to delete? Uh, what do you want to share? Well, yeah, I, I, 
I really appreciate that as well. When, when we see in the Old Testament the concept of remnant, um, the, typically the word used is sharith in the Hebrew. And the first time this appears is in Genesis chapter 45 and verse 7. If you have your Bibles, I think it's very interesting. The King James says this, God sent, this is, um, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, uh, God sent uh, me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. The very first instance that Sharith is used, which it's, it's translated remnant, I don't know, 40 or 50 times. Sharith is used here in Genesis 45, verse 7, and it's translated posterity. And I think it gives us already the exact the clue to what Ty was saying. We're talking about spiritual genetics here. We're talking about a DNA that God is implanting in his people. That, that DNA is the characteristics of, their, of his, own, his own character. And, um, and, and so the, the idea of remnant is, is, cannot be separated from, from the, the spiritual qualities that, um, that his followers have, his, his spiritual descendants have. And so the remnant at the end of time emerges with the DNA of Jesus Christ, the DNA that, of, of his people that was true throughout all time. And so I think it's really important to realize that we're talking about, about the spiritual characteristics here, not just a, um, a visible body, as important as that is, and, and we'll talk about that later on. Yeah, well, when I, 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 I'm hearing an emphasis on, on uh, a quality, uh, the, 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 the people in, in terms of an informal sense, but what about the church? You know, the, 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 we have the GC, the organization. I don't, I don't hear a lot of that. And I just want to ask the question, is, you know, because some people are confused. Is the church, uh, the buildings and the structure, the organization, is that the, emphasi the emphasis? And I don't hear you guys emphasizing that. Can I just get some clarification on that in, in your minds? I think I'll go first since it was first addressed to me. Um, I think that in looking for a visible body that embodies these principles, um, I believe the Seventh-day Adventist Church embodies these things um, in terms of what, what our doctrines are, what we believe as a church um, denominationally. I remember growing up, my parents told me, I grew up in the Adventist Church, um, but my parents told me, they said, you know, as you're growing up, and you study the Bible for yourself, if you find that anything we've taught you is not biblical, you need to leave, find a church that teaches what the Bible teaches. Um, and that's why I'm still a Seventh-day Adventist, because so far in my life, everything I've studied in the Bible, I see reflected in our beliefs as a Seventh-day Adventist church. Um, but I think the, for me, the emphasis on the qualitative aspect is because, um, again, growing up in the church, sometimes you can get caught up in I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, you know, and that is what makes me the remnant, as opposed to I'm, I'm, I want to be part of the remnant because I want to be part of a people who have these qualities, mm. um, which isn't necessarily always the same thing. I, I think the Apostle Paul and Jesus answer the question very clearly. Um, Jesus, Jesus said, recognizing uh, Israel as a part of Israel. He came to Israel, the national identity, and he said to them in John chapter 10, other sheep I have that are not of this fold, they hear my voice, 
They know the tone, the DNA, the theological. They know the spirit of the thing that's coming out of my mouth. They hear my voice and they gravitate toward me, but they're not of this national body. That's one, one point that's crucial to understand. Paul comes along in Romans 3 and Romans 9, and he says very, very scandalous things for, for Israelite ears. He says, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So this language is crucial. There's, there's the national identity, and there's the spiritual identity. And if you can imagine it this way, when national identity aligns with spiritual identity, you have the whole package, okay? But when you have merely national identity, genetics, I was born and raised, you know, you were born and raised a Seventh-day Adventist. It, it's, it's possible to be in, but out, and it's possible to be out, but actually in. That's what Jesus and, and, and Paul are teaching us. So if you could picture a visual, picture a circle. We don't have a blackboard here, but just picture a circle. Then picture another circle abutting that circle. There's two circles next to each other. Got that so far? This circle is the visible body called Seventh-day Adventists. This is the rest of the wide world of people who believe everything under the sun. And they're right next to each other. Now, with that illustration, draw in your mind a circle right over the middle of those two circles where they touch. Can you do that in your imagination? Boom, another circle, all right? Now, you have four quadrants. The left quadrant, you have the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the visible body, all right? But it's divided. There are tares and wheat. There are those who are merely national identification, but there are those who are national identification and spiritual identification. This circle over here, what do you have? Well, you also have two, two parts. You have wheat and tares, so to speak. You have those who are not identified with the visible body of Seventh-day Adventists, but the Lord says, or Paul says, or John, or somebody in the New Testament, some biblical writer says, the Lord knows those who are his. So he sees things we don't see. The Lord looks at this congregation right here, and he sees two things, not one thing. The Lord looks at the Seventh-day Adventist church, he sees wheat and tares. We can't sort that out. He does. And also over here, this circle, you have the language. There are sheep not of this fold that they're mine, and I know who they are. That's why when the call to Babylon is given, it's come out of her, my people. God sees his people in those other churches. And that's why Ellen White has this concept that the vast majority of those who profess faith in the third angel's message hmm. will abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition Simultaneously, she says, tribe after tribe from the world will come in as company after company that are in go out. So there's going to be this great exchange that's going to take place. So we have what we might call the final form of the remnant that is up and coming. We don't have the final form of the remnant yet where the two circles completely overlap and you have national identity and spiritual identity that dovetail, that fuse in one body. Does that? No, that's very, okay. very insightful. And, and I think we're gonna come back and touch upon it. If, if you don't mind, Chester, we'll move to the next uh, question, because I think we're gonna come back to this. Um, Adam, one of the identifying marks of the remnant is having the testimony of Jesus. 
uh, or the spirit of prophecy and what we understand to be the prophetic ministry of Ellen White. Should we be concerned with the trend within Adventism today in the belittling and the neglect of her writings? Yes. <laughs> is the short answer. Yes. It's a yes or no question, so the answer is yes. I need some footnotes. I need some footnotes. <laughs> we should be concerned. The reason why we should be concerned is um, the, the qualitative or, or what, what it says in Revelation chapter 12 is the identifying marks of the remnant church. Um, Revelation 12, 17, the dragon was wroth with the woman, went to make more with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. As, we, you know, as you do a study in Revelation on the testimony of Jesus, we find the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, not just isolated to we, what we believe is the ministry, uh, the prophetic gift in Ellen White, but the, you know, um, not just her, but the prophetic gift that's been manifested through the ages. But we definitely believe that she is one of the, um, the gift reflected in her life is one of the identifier marks of the remnant church. So we should be concerned if there's a trend of belittling and you know, pushing to the side on the fringes that the writings of Ellen White and, and the importance of her as uh, a prophetic source of authority today, because it's one of the marks that we have in, the, in these days that we are in what the remnant says in Revelation 12, 17. So they go hand in hand. You can't say, well, we are the remnant, but we're going to push this part aside. So, and, 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 and of course, I'll, I agree with that and accept that. And, but this belittling and this neglecting that's taking place amongst young people, I think many young people are not even reading mm. uh, Ellen White today. Um, are we as church leaders, as, as spiritual leaders, uh, perhaps in part responsible for that? Have, uh, I want us to really delve into that question just a little bit. Um, is, it, is it purely um, uh, a reason that they've just rejected her writings? What, what, what do you think is the cause of this? What's the impetus? Chester. Well, I, in, in working with young people around the, United, uh, around the Adventist Church, I've, I found there's uh, sort of different groups. And about, in North America, I would say about half of the Adventist young people really don't have much of a, an opinion about Ellen White. They don't have much exposure to her. They're sort of agnostic about, in their feelings about her, you know. And then there's about four out of ten that would have um, a negative feeling, honestly. And um, as I talk to them, I find that a lot of them have had Ellen White used as a hatchet. Um, it's sort of just Ellen White said this, so you can't do it. And there's 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 not a, there's not a effort to explain or understand biblical principles. Or it's just Ellen White was this um, you know spoil sport that ruined their lives, and and um, they saw fights in the church about her, and they just thought it was all um, useless. Um, and then, then there are those young people, thankfully, who I think have a positive view of the gift of prophecy and have been blessed and have, have personally benefited from them. And so what I've found is that, that we need to take accountability. We need to take responsibility for the misuse of Ellen White in the Adventist church. I do believe that we have had, um, as adults, uh, uh, generations maybe, that have largely... Um, depended on Ellen White as a crutch 
as a, instead of the lesser light to point us to the greater light, to actually lead us to study the Bible more and to be able to base our understandings of, of right and wrong from Scripture, they've used it. Uh, they've used you know snippets of her writings as as final answers and as sometimes taken out of context. And they've 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 read it at the fringes, you might say, and not not really got the whole balanced message of her writings. And uh, that's something that I just urge young people, read her writings for yourself. You know, um, if, you, if you read her books, you will find they point you to Jesus. And they point you to salvation, not through your own works, but through Jesus merits. Mm, amen. And that, yes, they hold a high standard, but it's a high standard that comes from falling in love with our Savior. Mm. It, it comes from a heart transformation, not a, not a, I'm going to try harder and grit my teeth and grin and bear it, and it's a sacrifice. No, it's a joy to live for Jesus. And she is a person who loved Jesus. Give Chester a pulpit. Um, that's... <laughs> Amen. So Amen. I do believe that we should take some personal responsibility. Yeah. But we've got to simply encourage our young people to read for themselves, Amen. and they will be blessed. You seem really excited, Ty. Uh, do yeah. you, you have something that you want to share here? I, I just agree with everything that, that Chester said. If I added anything, I, I would simply say Ellen White was a super cool, broad-minded human being who had the gift of prophecy and under the inspiration of the Spirit, she wrote a lot of material, 25 million words, in fact. And so if, if, if human beings with their biases in their various inclinations compile a list of sentences from her writings and call it a book and say, Ellen White, this is a book by Ellen White, that's not necessarily a book by Ellen White, that's a book by somebody who compiles sentences and paragraphs from Ellen White but didn't take into consideration the context in which she was writing a number of things. And this is why she herself came along and she said, listen, when reading the testimonies, I'm quoting her now, time and place must be considered. There are things I'm saying, you know, there's one example that's a funny one where, where, where somebody came to me with a quotation from Ellen White that said you should eat half the food that you eat. They were applying it to themselves, not to me. They were saying, this says I should eat half the food. This guy weighed like 120 pounds. And he was six foot tall. And he was in the process of vanishing. And he thought that quote applied to him. That quote did not apply to him. Yeah. That quote I showed him the context wasn't an isolated moral mandate. It had a context. Ellen White's writings need to be read broadly and opinions need to be formed based on what she says, not based on compilations that people crank out by the dozens. Amen, I appreciate that, Ty. Let's, let's move to the next question. Uh, Chester, does the notion that the Adventists are the remnant inevitably fade us towards an us versus them mentality? We're hearing a lot of that today in the discussion and the rhetoric. Uh, this better than thou mindset. So I want you to talk a little bit about that. And the, the other uh, part of that question is, how should we perceive other denominations? 
Well, I think, I think Ty, in his earlier statements, he made a, a pretty clear illustration of those circles. And, uh, you know, my understanding of Adventism is that the goal of the cleansing of the sanctuary is the harmonizing of those circles. Um, that, that's, that's, that's the mission of the, of the antitypical Day of Atonement. Um, and so as the books of record are cleansed, the church on earth is cleansed, eventually the book of life, those who are living in the book of life, and the visible church on earth is the same thing. God's, God's people are not only today, today that, that process is not finished, so God's people are not only to be found in the visible church, the remnant body. He's always had a body. He's always had a visible body. But, but there were plenty of people in the church in the wilderness who were complaining and even worshiping the golden calf. But they were Israelites. Um, they weren't converted. They weren't following God. They didn't have the spiritual DNA. Um, and so in, in, in the last days, we understand that God has still a visible body. Now, the way I like to say it is this. The Bible defines what God's last day message and movement is. That's not me. I don't define that. The Bible defines it. What I do is I look at the Bible and I say, aha, the Bible says that they're going to keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. They're going to have the faith of Jesus. They're going to have the three angels' messages. They're going to be living in the fear and, 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 and of God and, and giving Him glory and, and preaching the judgment hour message and worshiping the Creator. So they're characteristics the Bible defines of God's last day people. I believe those are the same qualities that the early church had. I do. I believe that's why they're the remnant. They, they, they began, the church began those, that pure spiritual DNA, and it emerges at the end of time with the same spiritual DNA. The reason I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, not because I think the Seventh-day Adventist church is the right church, um, the remnant church. The reason I'm a Seventh-day Adventist is because I'm a disciple of Jesus. And I believe that the Seventh-day Adventist church is the the body, because one of the characteristics of the remnant is it's a global movement, right? I believe the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the closest global body of believers to the characteristics I see in Revelation. So I find that I want to be a part of that remnant, and I want to tell other people, you should be a part of that remnant too. It's not me saying, I am the remnant. I'm saying, I want to be a part of the remnant. When you, when you look at at the, the message of Jesus to Laodicea, there's plenty of reason for us not to be proud and elitist. We're actually told that we think we're rich and increased with goods, but we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And Jesus says this, I will spew you out of my mouth. Vomit in the Greek. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> The antidote or the, the way we are prevented from being vomited out of Jesus' mouth is also found in the message later. He says, I stand at the door and knock. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so if we don't, if, we, if you want to ultimately be in the final picture of the remnant, the final form of the remnant, mm -hmm. we've got to have that relationship with Jesus. Amen. And that will lead us, I believe, to humility. I believe that will lead us to wanting other people to know Jesus as we know him. Hmm. It's, not, it's not we're right and you're wrong. It's we've fallen in love with Jesus. We found out what he taught when he was here. We want to 
teach that too. We find out how he lived when he was here. We want to live that way too. We're disciples of Jesus. If you're a disciple of Jesus in a different Christian faith, I believe you're going to want to be a part of this remnant too. That's, that's simply how I see it. This is, this is really fun. I'm really enjoying this. Um, does anyone else have anything to add to that? I want to throw a scripture on the table. Sure. Paul helps us on this in Romans chapter 3. He reasons through and he says, basically, your question but with different language. He says, what advantage is there in being a Jew? He poses that question. Is there any advantage we could take? What advantage is there in being a Seventh-day Adventist? Why not a Baptist? Why not a Methodist? Why not, why not, why not? He says, what advantage? And his answer is, much in every way, chiefly because to them was given, committed, the oracles of God. Mm -hmm. This word oracles, the oracles of God, refers to the entire corpus or body of the prophetic works. Well, Israel had the prophets, and the law was given at Sinai, and this is the lineage through which Messiah is going to come. So there's, again, the national reality, the national identity. What advantage is there to be a Seventh-day Adventist? Are you automatically, eternally saved because you're a Seventh-day Adventist? No. What's the advantage? You have access to the raw theological materials for constructing the most beautiful picture of God the world has ever seen. Amen. Amen. You, have, you have a doctrinal, a doctrinal, a, a body of doctrinal truths and you have the writings of Ellen White, you have a historical background, and that entire package, that, that, that the oracles, gives you a positioning in the world to <clears throat> preach the gospel with unprecedented clarity. But it doesn't mean, it doesn't give any place for arrogance or elitism, because the fact is, it's a movement, it's a revolution. Anybody can be a part of it. I was not born and raised as Seventh-day Adventist like Ziku was. I was not born in the movement. But and nobody barred me. I just said, hey, I want to be a part of that. And they said, come on. <laughs> so anybody can be a part of this thing. It's not, it's not an exclusive thing. Now, Ellen White rebuked the arrogance in this statement. This is profound because this is a potential. She says, quote, our grand lesson to our children, to be taught to our children, is that of freedom from every particle of egoism and bigotry. That's what we should teach our children, she says. Freedom from every particle of egoism and bigotry. What is she talking about? She's talking about denominational pride. She goes on and says, they should be taught, our children, that other souls outside of our faith are precious and that jesting and sneering and sarcasm or contempt for those outside of our faith will be an offense to God. Such a course will wound people and wound God, I might add. It will wound the soul, hinder our prayers, enfeeble our spiritual growth if we indulge these ideas. Mm -hmm. Then she goes on and says this, we should educate our children not to be narrow, but to be broad and, to, and, and in agony to have an agony of desire and wrestling of faith to, to be encouraged, God will give them the ability to win souls. And then she says this, I'm sorry this is a long quote, but this is what you asked about. There are many true Christians not of our faith. Mm -hmm. This is her words, not mine. Many true Christians not of our faith with whom we come in contact, 
who live in accordance with the best light that they have, and they, have, and they are in the great favor of God. God is smiling on these people. He loves them. He digs them. He's like, whoa, these are my people. And then she says this, there is to be no self-righteousness or Phariseeism among God's people. Okay, so she directly addressed this tendency to say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are we. We're it. You're not. We just need to demolish that idea. That needs to be completely out of our spirits, out of our vocabulary completely. Jesus came along, and Jesus in John chapter 8 said, you think you're children of Abraham? Well, nationally and genetically you are. Spiritually, you're not. You're children of the devil. We need to be very careful that we do not posture and project ourselves to the world in a way that gives the impression that we're it, you're not. Yep. Agreed. Uh, Adam, did you have something? Just real quick. Um, I mean, I agree with everything that's been said. The question says, does the notion that Adventists are the, are the remnant inevitably fatus? Yes. And I think the answer to that is no, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. It doesn't inevitably fatus to us and them and we're better than you. It doesn't. Mm. I think it, it, it has at times in the past, and maybe to a, because of a bad explanation or whatever, but there has, for whatever reason, it has led to some of that in the past. It doesn't have to, though, and it shouldn't. Amen. And I believe the explanations that have been given here are, you know, have been excellent ways of explaining th th this concept of the remnant you know, in, 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 and how it, it shouldn't lead to that. Now, it may have been, and that could be another discussion as to why all those things are the causes, which we don't have time for now, but it shouldn't inevitably fate us to that. Yes, thank you, agreed. Uh, what, yes, please, one sentence. I, I, just wanted to, <laughs> I just wanted to hark back to you know, the beginning of the conversation, how there's kind of a pushback to the concept of remnant, and I think it goes with what Ty was saying, that that, that arrogance and the Phariseeism that can be manifested by people who believe themselves to be the remnant, it, I mean, it's, it's off-putting. So it, it wouldn't, it's not surprising then that somebody would be like, what, you're the remnant and you act like that? Um, and then on top of it, like, mm. is it even a biblical concept? And, and it goes on and on and on. Yeah. So we, we do a disservice to you know, to, to scripture or, or the scripture, how it's supposed to be lived out in our lives, and it results in this pushback to what are actually biblical concepts that are fine. Mm -hmm. Thank I think, you, I, yes. I think the, one of the reasons why, just bouncing more of what Seeker said, the disconnect that youth have with maybe the concept of the remnant is the disconnect between what they're told, this is right, in a sense, the national identity of the remnant with the spiritual condition of their church. Well, if, if we are the remnant, and we are God's chosen and faithful, and yet I went to business meeting last year, and I'm never going to business meeting again because elder so-and-so was fighting elder so-and-so, and sister so-and-so was doing this, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, that doesn't look like the remnant to me. And so I think in the eyes of a lot of youth, there's that disconnect and that struggle, and it comes back to, you know, if we were living as we should and you know. That would not be taking place. Yeah. Really, really good points. Let's move to the next question. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is the eschatological end-time remnant of Revelation 12:17. We've uh, talked about that, discussed that, but we're also described as Laodicea, and reference was made to that already, a lukewarm, less-than-ideal church. 
Uh, it's been suggested that church has fallen so far from God's standard that it's no longer the remnant, that there's actually a remnant within the remnant composed of the truly and really faithful. Now, Ty, would you agree with that? Uh, I, uh, your, your ministry is a self-supporting ministry that supports the church. Um, you, you may have re received accusations of, of things like that in the past. Have we as a church fallen so far that we forfeited the right to be the remnant church? Well, the short answer, historically, eschatologically, theologically accurate answer is just no. There's, there's no such thing as a... Prophecy does not allow in the, the unfolding of the prophetic scenario for a forfeiture of that identity because that identity will follow through to the end with whoever it is that aligns with it. Amen. So, so there is no forfeiture of, of that identity. But at the same time, it's crucial to understand that the Laodicean message is the seventh church and therefore historically in time it lines up with us. And so we need to examine very carefully the Laodicean message. And the Laodicean message, if you don't mind me just clarifying, is not about the word that was used in the question, standards. Standards are important, but the Laodicean message isn't about standards. It's about identity and message. And what I mean by that is this. When Jesus in the Laodicean message says to us, to Seventh-day Adventists, you perceive yourself as rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, Ellen White comes along and she defines that rich and increased with goods not as material wealth, but as doctrinal and theological wealth. So Jesus is saying that you have, you have a perception of yourself that is pretty, pretty inflated based on the fact that you have doctrinal verities. These truths you're rich and increased with goods with, but the fact is that while you're holding the oracles of God, while you're holding these doctrinal truths, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Mm -hmm. What you need is, and he gives three remedies. Number one, you need gold tried in the fire, which both the Bible and Ellen White define as, and it's incredible to realize this, faith that works by love. The gold tried in the fire that the Adventist church needs that cures the, the doctrinal and theological puffed upness, that's not a word, don't look that up, don't Google it, the, 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 that, that attitude, that spirit, okay, faith that is actuated or energized by love, that's the gospel. In other words, <laughs> Jesus is saying, you know which day is the right day, which day is the wrong day, you know when you're dead, you're really dead, you know, you got the math of the 2300 days figured out, October 22nd, 1844, you need the gospel. You need the gospel not instead of that, you need the gospel to pervade that. You need the, the gospel to get into all the nooks and crannies of this doctrinal portfolio that you, that you have. Then he says, second remedy, not only do you need gold tried in the fire, faith that is actuated by love, you need white raiment, people. You need the righteousness of Christ. You need the message of justification by faith to completely pervade your doctrinal understanding. And thirdly, you need ISAB because you're super blind you think you are what you're not. The fact is that I've given you all these gifts and privileges in doctrinal wealth, and you have, you have extracted Jesus from it. This is why Ellen White would come along on the basis of that message and say that Adventist preaching is as void of Christ as was the offering of Cain.
ouch. This is why Ellen White, the prophet of the movement, would come along and say, while, while they, the other denominations, they have, left, they have divorced the law from the gospel, she says, we've left out Christ and his matchless love. So what's worse? I don't think we need to parse that. But the point is that the doctrinal message has the potential to ruin us with pride unless that doctrinal message is completely pervaded with, infused with the love of God in Christ as the constant refrain. So we don't say right day versus wrong day, let us close with prayer, who wants to be baptized? <laughs> we say the Sabbath is the seventh day as a memorial of a finished work of creation and a finished work of redemption. There is righteousness by faith, rest in Christ. So we preach the Sabbath as a gospel doctrine, not as a bare bones right day versus wrong day. There's more to it than merely proving with 47 verses that this is the right day, that's the wrong day. You don't close with prayer there. You keep preaching and you get to Jesus. Amen. Okay. I think I, we need to move forward. Uh, we're running out of time, so I want to move to the next question. There's increasing rhetoric emphasizing the notion that being spiritual is positive, that religion is negative. The implication being that spirituality is real, while religion is inauthentic. Subtle and explicit criticisms uh, of the church structure, uh, perceptions of the hierarchical nature of the church are, are on the rise. Do we need a more decentralized model of organization that will better further our mission objectives? That's a tough question, so Chester, uh, what's your response to that? When you have to answer a tough question, you should be called Chester Clark III. <laughs> Chester Van Clark III. Yes. Well, um, you know, I think several speakers, uh, Adam and, and Ty, have already touched on, on, on probably why this is happening. Um, when it's been said from a reliable source that the most powerful argument in favor of Christianity is a loving and lovable Christian. Unfortunately, the converse is also true. The most powerful argument against Christianity hmm. is professed Christianity, a form of godliness which denies the power thereof. And I think the greatest reason why people see a conflict between spirituality and religion is because, as was prophesied in the last days, there would be a form of godliness without the power. And uh, we have, in the church, failed to properly represent our Lord and Savior. Now, where do we start with answering that question? Um, I don't believe there should be a conflict between spirituality and religion. I believe in organized religion. I have people in my community who believe that they are Seventh-day Adventists who never go to the Seventh-day Adventist church. They go hiking, they go camping, they go um, other places, do they other go things. Home and watch 3ABN. They may watch 3ABN. They might even listen to audioverse. Um, <laughs> I believe that God calls us not, into, not just into his ideological intellectual truth. I believe 
that God calls us, even in these last days, even with an imperfect church, even with the wheat and tares, even with prior to the shaking going on, I believe God calls us into fellowship with fellow believers who are imperfect. And I believe that the only way we can grow spiritually, emotionally, socially as a whole being, because I believe that's how we are meant to grow, the only way is when we're born into a family. We're born spiritually into the family of God. That's the New Testament model. That's the, I mean, Paul didn't just meet Jesus on the Damascus Road and go preach. God sent Ananias, his representative of the church, to bring Paul into fellowship with the body. Okay? Paul already was understanding more of theology than the church that he was entering. <laughs> I mean, just those three days meditating in blindness. But he was called into fellowship with the body. I believe that God calls us into community for our own spiritual growth. It's messy. Hmm. We're imperfect. The people around us are imperfect. But we need that. And we need to, know, need to learn to love each other even though we have differences. Even though, uh, you know, I may have... I may have I may have this understanding that I've grown into. Others don't have it yet. But sometimes I forget that it took me 20 years to come to this conclusion. I think my brothers and sisters ought to be here right now. You know, they ought to be agreeing with me on everything. And, and we need to be in that body and have that accountability and that fellowship. It's not just about having a place to worship God. It's about having relationship with people who are on the same journey towards heaven that we are on. We need that. And I can't emphasize that enough. So I, I really believe that even millennials and post-millennials, they still need not just spirituality, they need organized religion. The second reason I'll say uh, real briefly, I believe that the remnant message is a global message. You cannot take as an individual... You cannot take the message to the whole world. Um, maybe unless you're Thai. I mean, you've traveled an awful lot. Um, some of us have tried to, to be all over the world. But the fact of the matter is that in order to finish this work, we need to be a part contributing towards a, an organization that is a global organization. Amen. And, you know... Are there problems with organizations? Yes. The organization is a human organization. The structure may not be perfect. But listen, it's the only hope for us to take the three angels' messages to the whole world is for us to do it together. Amen. 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 Adam, I think you have... No, oh, uh, sound bites. Or did you not Yeah, have I have two sound bites. Yes. Number one is you only find out who you are in relationship with others. You need people to offend you so you can forgive them. And in the, process, in the process of staying in relationship with people who violate you, you grow spiritually in the likeness of Jesus. So, so you have to be in fellowship. You can't actually be a Christian in an isolated situation at home channel surfing. You can't be a Christian. Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask another really, really challenging question. I really, I really apologize, Siku. Um, this is a tough one, but you're uh, a female. Uh, I've noticed that. And uh, I want to say, uh, it, may, it may not be stated... You're very observant, Andy. Very observant. 
They may not be stated explicitly. I'm sure many assume that having an anti-women's ordination stance should be a prerequisite for being a part of God's faithful remnant church. Should one's position on women's ordination be used as a litmus test for being a true faithful Adventist? Siku. Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was going to say yes. Um, I think of what Chester was just talking about in terms of growing together and growing in our understanding. In the book of Ephesians, like Ephesians chapter 4, um, I just discovered this recently. You know, in the first part of Ephesians chapter 4, he's talking about how to live together in community and um, how to have unity like even in that diversity. And then he goes and he talks about the spiritual gifts that God gives to his church in order to come to a unity in terms of our understanding and our doctrine, like to come to a unity. So there's, there's this idea that we need to be unified as we are getting unified. Um, no, for someone to, uh, I think the problem with the question is, it's not the problem with the question, the, probably the crux of the question is that litmus test thing. Um, looking at somebody else and making myself a judge over their spiritual condition, making myself a judge over their faithfulness to God, a judge over their journey with God and where they are and where they're headed. If we're gonna have wheat and tares, and the, the Lord of Harvest told the servants, the angels, you, don't, you can't decide who's a wheat, who's a tear. What makes me think I can decide who's wheat and who's a tear? Mm. Um, so it's, I think the problem with litmus, whatever the litmus test is, um, you know, in my church back home, I don't know if I should bring it up. Okay, okay, I'll just say it. <laughs> like, you know, one of the things, you know, in, in my church back home, I'm not talking about anybody here or church here, you know, it was, you know, does the girl wear pants or does she not wear pants? You know, and if the girl wears pants, she cannot be a true Seventh-day Adventist, you know? And, it, and we end up pushing people away, away from a relationship with God where we, we have no place doing that. He's not called us to that. He's called us to work together and to grow together, to come to a unity of faith, um, as opposed to pointing fingers and deciding who's in and who's out. It's not our place. Very good response. Anyone else? Yes. I want to add on. focus on, I guess, the two words in their prerequisite or litmus test, and I'll yes. leave the women's alone for just a moment. Um, I think, we, as, as Siku said, we do struggle in our church and in our churches, local congregations, organizations like this, or, or wider bodies, with this litmus test, like what, what qualifies you? Um, something that I've looked at recently that has helped me in, in terms of a framework of understanding um, in categorizing things, I guess you'd say, has been, I guess you'd say, different levels of where we put our beliefs and, and, and teachings. The highest level would be doctrine a doctrine of the church, and that's something that we, we've reached as a church through oftentimes long study, maybe 10, maybe 20, maybe 30 years. I mean, the doctrine of the Godhead, we came to as a church over 50, 60 years of study, maybe even longer. So doctrine is something as a church we've, we've studied for a long time and come to a worldwide consensus, and that would be a litmus test. Sabbath, state of the dead, these are doctrines that we hold and they're proven, 100% we can prove them from the Bible. Below that is what would uh, identify as a teaching. Now a teaching may be something we generally hold to be true, 
and maybe best practice, but we don't hold as a test of fellowship. Some of these teachings, not all of them, but some of these teachings may be things that generally rely maybe more on the writings of Ellen White than the Bible to conclusively prove. Then below that, you'd have majority slash minority opinions. Below that, you then have personal opinion. Now, I believe some of the confusion comes in our church when someone takes a minority-majority opinion and then says, no, that's a doctrine. Or it's, a, it's what maybe our pioneers would have said, a landmark belief. Or it's a core belief. Now, I'll just kind of illustrate this with one example that I think we can understand easily. For example, diet. Now, the doctrine on diet, if you're going to summarize it, is kind of clean and unclean. That's what you can cl conc conclusively prove from the Bible. Now, personally, I'm a vegetarian. I've been one since I was born. I believe that's best practice, and as a church, we hold that to be best practice. But yet, we fall short of making that a test of fellowship because we can't conclusively prove it from the Bible, even though we believe it's best to do so. So we put vegetarianism as, as a teaching. Now, then maybe even below that, you'd have different other things, maybe, maybe vegan diet or things like that could be a majority, minority view, et cetera. But we get confused when we say, no, I, I don't want to take that as, as just my, my opinion. I'm going to say that needs to be a litmus test for the whole body. Yeah. But it's not. We haven't come through consensus that way. And so to me, that, that can, in a sense, frame it. Now, I'm not, in a sense, answering the women's ordination thing, but more so the litmus test. We, we, we move them up and down, and that causes confusion. No, that's very, very helpful. And I think it's going to be insightful in our discussion tomorrow as well, uh, should that be used and utilized as a litmus test. And um, I'm going to be interested to see what you guys have to say about that. Yes, Chester. Really briefly, the problem with litmus tests, um, and they are very popular mm -hmm. within a, a, our portion of the church, you might say, some people say a more conservative part of the church. The problem with litmus tests is that they change. Like when I was a teenager, the litmus test for whether you were true or faithful was, I don't know, nature of Christ or one of those other issues. There's a, if you look back in Adventist history, we fought over issues that have never come to the point of doctrine we've mm -hmm. never had worldwide consensus on but people have felt very passionate about and they've tried to make this a litmus test for everyone else and you're either with us or against us and uh, sometimes they can be we can actually be agreeing but because of our differences in culture and language and semantics and understanding of words and and our, our spiritual journey where we've been and what things have meant to us in the past we could be agreeing if we really listen to each other, but we're actually disagreeing in the language that we're using. And, and litmus tests can just be a... Doctrine is the correct way of understanding. In other words, if we have... We have to. Again, this is where we have the difference between organized religion and just spirituality. If you have a worldwide movement that we're working together, living together in community, and we have to define ourselves. And doctrine is how that happens. Mm. Amen. I agree with everything they said, but can I answer the women's ordination part? Uh, you may. Okay. You may. The, 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 the direct answer would be that no, a person's position on women's ordination is not a test of fellowship for Seventh-day Adventists. It can't be because the Bible nor the Spirit of Prophecy make any definitive statement regarding women's ordination, pro or con. So it's not a doctrinal imperative, and it's not a moral imperative, okay? 
I personally wrote some articles leading up to the general conference session to simply make that point. It's not a test of fellowship because there were a number of voices saying, this is the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Byram. The earth is gonna open up. This is apostasy. This is the difference between right and wrong. This is the and all of that kind of language was pulling the conversation down to a level of basically you know, five-year-old conversation or just a fight in a back alley because people were now on the defensive. And so I simply came out saying not we should or we shouldn't. That wasn't my point. My point was it's not a test of fellowship, so let's all keep smiling at one another. Let's be friends. Let's preach the third angel's message together regardless of where you fall on that issue. One quotation that will help with the broad context. This is so amazing. Quote, men, human beings, make the work of advancing the truth tenfold harder than it really, than it really is by seeking to take God's work out of his hands into their own finite hands. They think that they must be constantly inventing something to make men do things which they suppose these persons ought to do. The time thus spent in inventing tests, the time thus spent is all the while making the work more complicated. For the great chief worker is left out of the question in the care of his own heritage. Men undertake the job of, this is funny language, but it's the only time she used it. Men undertake the job of tinkering up, tinkering up the defective characters of others and only succeed in making the defects much worse. They would better leave God to do his own work, for he does not regard them as capable of reshaping character. So we shouldn't be tinkering with people's characters or what they hold to be true or untrue on those levels that Adam was talking about. You can be a Seventh-day Adventist, a faithful, Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventist, and have different opinions on certain issues. And we, in the conservative branch of Adventism, need to understand that and, and stop putting screws to one another's heads and turning people away from Jesus by an argumentative spirit. Yes. Ellen White had a vision one time, it's called the basket of fruit vision. She said, I saw in my vision a man with a beautiful basket of fruit, that's the truth, and he took it to a group of people, that's the church. He offered the fruit to them and nobody wanted it. So he got discouraged, blamed the people, and put the basket of fruit down and left the room and said, they don't want the truth. She said, then I saw another man come along, pick up the same basket of fruit, offer it to the same group of people, and they freely partook. The problem wasn't the message, the truth, the fruit. The problem was the man. With his spirit and his attitude, he was making the fruit, the truth, unpalatable. Yeah. So the spirit with which we convey and communicate the truth is of extreme importance. Amen. Amen. We, we are running out of time, but there's two board members on this stage, and we're going to make an executive decision to go a little bit longer with a final question. I want to talk a little bit about Mission Drift. I promise we will end, but this is just too uh, interesting for me. I want to, I want to quote a passage from, uh, or uh, a statement from uh, Spectrum uh, entitled Mission and Message. And it's talking about Mission Slide. 
says, we no longer live in the modern society in which our church was founded. We're now in a postmodern one. Increasingly, the search for truth has been supplanted by the truth that works for me. Because of the de-emphasis on objective truth, a number of our church's successful outreach methods no longer work. A number of outreach methods used 50 to 100 years ago, like literature evangelism and the six-month evangelistic campaign, are increasingly feeling like an Amish family in the New York fashion district, quaint and out of touch. In some quarters of the church, the response to this complexity has been to double down. Faithfulness to Adventist lifestyle and behavioralism gets emphasized. Another response recognizes that times have changed and that traditional evangelism methods are not working. So they have shifted to a more social orientated evangelism where Adventist distinctives uh, are minimized. Illustrative of mission drift has been the rise of GYC, you're here today, uh, Generation Youth Christ, and the One Project. While one might argue that they are approaching the same problem from different angles, their divergent approaches suggest that there is no clear agreement in our church about our church's mission and message. And I'm going to combine two questions and we're going to close with this discussion. Adam, you're a former evangelist. Are our evangelistic approaches and messages dated? Are we guilty for deleting Jesus from our distinctives? We touched upon that already. Are we placing an imbalanced emphasis upon an intellectual agreement to a set of doctrines? Ty, you touched upon that. And I want to agree to some extent with some of the points in this article that, that times have changed. We have to recognize that. That there is a need for us to contextualize our message. Uh, we, we are living in, a, in an age where uh, our audience is postmodern and post-postmodern. So we don't have to change the content per se uh, or the message, but maybe we do need to repackage it. So I want to ask that question to Adam and also Ty. What are your thoughts? You work in uh, Eugene, Oregon, a very liberal, very progressive town and, and, and city. What are your thoughts? Do you have some practical suggestions moving forward in meeting these challenges? I know that's a lot, friends. Uh, <laughs> you you so asked cool. as many questions there as you have in the whole panel. <laughs> <laughs> like 10 questions. Yeah, I just have to squeeze it all in. But, but some of the questions I think we're all... Sure, 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 sure. Let's get the highlight. Yeah. Um, I, I'd, have issue with your, I'd have issue with, first of all, with what you said about me personally on a personal level, that I'm a former evangelist. Yes, I stand corrected. <laughs> we're, we are all evangelists. Amen. Thank you. Yeah. Um, clarifying that, I'll move on. Um, <laughs> There was, there was, I mean, just to try and get the gist, there was some of the questions I believe were, are our traditional methods outdated? Yes. The answer to that, I believe, is no. It kind of would depend how you define traditional. I think if we're defining traditional as a public campaign where we you know, pitch a tent, rent a hall, preach four weeks, you know, da 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 da, is it outdated? The answer would be no. Is it as successful as it was 20 years ago? The, the answer would be no, it's not. Should we do away with it because it's not as successful as it was 10, 15, 20 years ago? No. Why should we not do away with it? Ellen White says it's one of the methods of evangelism we should do. And I believe her 
counsel in the book of evangelism is timeless and will go till Jesus comes. Now, Amen. I believe in you, when you read the book of evangelism, she talks about traditional, quote unquote, public evangelism. She talks about a whole load of other things as well. Now, I think maybe if you use the context here of North America, but it applies to other places around the world. In the past, we have gotten away with not doing the other stuff because we got enough numbers on that four-week intense campaign. So we did a four-week intense campaign. We got 20, 30 baptisms. We, we, we could ignore doing the more labor-intensive other things that we're called to do. Now we're getting less here. Does it mean that we should, we, we should still do that? Because you can't bring someone over the line. I mean, you can meet people in the community. You, you, know, you can play football in the community, meet people, make, make all these contacts. But you can't bring those contacts over the line without teaching them the Bible. So the two have to go hand in hand. And I think we, we should recognize, yes, some of the traditional methods we've done aren't as um, successful as the only method a local church should do, but it should never have been the only method anyway. I think in the Amen. past we were just lazy. Okay, we got enough there. Okay, we can sit, sit on our laurels for the rest of the year. Yeah. And, and, and now it's catching up with us. I mean, what's happening in America happened in, in, in Europe like 30 years ago. Now it's catching up and we're not getting as so much bang for our buck. And people are saying, okay, it's not financially viable. Let's not do it. No, 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 no. You know, there's merit to the public preaching of the gospel. There's merit to doing Bible study and all these things. We should, the methods that have been outlined from the, the method of Jesus, you know, he mingled with men, et cetera, et cetera, those still, those still work. And, and in the postmodern secular world, people have the same, the heart needs of man are the same. Amen. Let's close uh, with you, Ty. There, there's a difference, not, not a, a sharp difference, but there is a distinction between message and methodology. Ellen White, the prophet to this movement, encouraged experimentation and forward thinking with regards to methodology. Um, she was all about trying new things because the goal is to reach people for Jesus. Paul had this understanding. Paul said, I became all things to all men that I may by some means win some. The goal is to reach people, not to become stuck in patterns that, that, we, that we regard as somehow orthodox or doctrinal. Methods are not doctrinal. Mm. Methods change over time. We have, for example, the 11 o'clock service that we call the divine hour, the holy hour. Um, there's nothing right or wrong about it. The Sabbath is the seventh day. That's holy. But the 11 o'clock hour, I'm just using this as an example of how things become canonized that aren't. We got the 11 o'clock service from Martin Luther's drinking problem. He couldn't make it to church early enough, so they kept moving it later and later and later, so you end up with the 11 o'clock service. I just give you that as an example that the seventh day is the Sabbath, and that's holy time. But there are things that we can canonize that shouldn't be canonized. There's a difference between method and message. So Ellen White specifically addressed our historical situation as a people by saying this, and I quote, on the one hand, religionists generally, the other churches, religionists generally have divorced the law from the gospel, while we, Adventists, on the other hand, 
have almost done the same from another standpoint. We have left out, we have not held up before the people the righteousness of Christ and the full significance of the great plan of redemption. We have left out Christ in his matchless love and brought in theories, reasonings, and we have preached argumentative discourses. Now, the language I'm trying to draw us to is this language of argumentative discourse. It's a method that was developed into a hybrid proof text method. The, the average Adventist layperson could roll up into any town and challenge the minister with a PhD to a debate, and like a machine gun, just, you know, you want 47 verses on the Sabbath? Well, I have 52. Boom, 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 and win the argument and lose the war. Ellen White was rebuking that methodology. She was saying the argumentative sermon approach is contrary to the spirit of Christ. So methodologically, we need to preach the message in a way that people can hear it and process it and, and lean into it rather than leaning out of the message. So you ask for practical, are there, are there ways that we can do this differently now? I'll give an example. You said I live in Eugene, very secular city with a lot of good vegetarian restaurants, by the way. But that city, that city is a city of unbelief. And so rather than sending out a brochure of prophecy sermons, which they have no interest in, they're not biblically literate, they could care less, we rather just did, before I came here, a seminar called Crave, based on a book I wrote called A God Named Desire. And the idea is basically to communicate to the community of secular people who came to hear this, that human beings have biological, emotional, and spiritual cravings that all point somewhere higher than the cravings themselves and coming to the punchline that Jesus is the desire of all nations. Jesus is the bedrock level craving that we are all longing for. And these people, they, they were just like, they were totally into it because they, they're living in a culture and in a situation right now that's all about understanding human cravings. And so that was, that's just one example of a method. Well, the method didn't just have that series of meetings. Before that, we did $200,000 of, of medical and dental and optical work in the community, free, and then invited them to these meetings, and they came. So, so it's a bigger picture than just sending out a brochure and, and saying, you know, we're doing the work of the Lord or mailing out a bazillion great controversies. It's, it's, it's one thing to do, but it's not the thing to do. It's not the only thing to do. There needs to be a broader, people need to know that we're real people, that we are drawing close to them. Yep. And then, this is where Ellen White comes along and says, you should not roll up into a town, she says, and say, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I believe in the, the non-immortality of the soul and Seventh-day Sabbath. What do you believe? She says, don't do that. Yeah, she says, show them that you love their souls, that you value their good, and her words, not mine, there will be time enough for doctrines, quote unquote. Yeah. So she is relational in her orientation to evangelism, not merely cerebral. And there needs to, we need to incorporate the whole person into soul winning. Yeah. We need to love people and draw close to them. Amen. So they I want to hear what we have to say. Agreed. And I think the final word is going to be from our very own Adam. <laughs> uh, I think 
as a minister, I sometimes, I'll be honest with you, I'll be frank, sometimes I get sick and tired of going to ministers' meetings and sitting and listening to workshops by the next answer to the problem of our world church. Like if, and, and, and invariably there's a pastor up there who's sharing what they've done that worked in their local locality, but it's now kind of almost foisted off as if this is what everyone should do. And it will answer the problem of church growth. There is no silver bullet. Like, okay, they've done that in storyline, great. Now, I could probably take most of that and copy that in the UK, and most of it would work. Likewise, we could, but it's not the answer. The answer. Mm. Like, in some ways, I think we've been far too, there's been, there's been a too much, what should, ah, let me get my words right. There's been not enough creativity in our approach to mm. repackaging and what we do. We, we, we're lazy with how we're like, what should we do? Oh, oh let's just do that. You know, we're lazy. You know, the message doesn't change, but I think we need to be far more, let's sit down, let's think. How do we meet the needs of our community? What talents do we have in this local church? How can I reach people on a personal level as a mechanic, as a nurse, as this, and lead them to Bible study and commitment to Jesus Christ? And we're searching for some, some elusive method, some program. And we're forgetting that, you know, we, we have talent and we have personality and, and, and God has put us in places to meet people and to utilize mm. that much more than this magic method. Amen. With that, we're going to go ahead and close. Thank you so much uh, for being here. Thank you uh, to all the panelists. Uh, God bless. We'll go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we have discussed many things, many important topics and, and issues. And Lord, we thank you so much for your spirit uh, being here. Uh, we've learned much, and we pray that uh, it'll open our eyes and our minds to the comprehensive uh, mission and purpose that you have for our church. And we thank you, Lord. We want to ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.